So let us begin with verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Now before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and we were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now... I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers, they planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached in safety. Thank you. Wow, an adventure. I have two sons, age nine and seven, and a daughter, age five. And our practice at, at home, as it is probably for many of you, is to read the Bible and to pray with them at bedtime. And on my turns to read, I've been reading through the narrative sections of the Old Testament with them. And about a week and a half ago, we came to the book of Job. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Job, but whoever coined the phrase, the patience of Job, 
hasn't read the book. Job is railing against God, asking questions and pleading to know why certain things have happened to him. And Job is pretty forceful, almost beating his fists against God's chest and wanting, wanting answers. Why have my flocks and riches been stolen? Why have my servants been slaughtered? And why, worst of all, have my children died together in one freak disaster? Job yells and begs and weeps and wishes that he had never been born. And even when his wife says, give up, curse God and die. And even when his friends all say, this is your fault. God is punishing you. Job holds on to the conviction that this is not the case. That something else is going on and somehow that God doesn't do wrong. And then Job makes this incredible statement in Job 13 and verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. What a thing to say. That's not how we would frame the statement. We'd put it the other way around. If he saves my life, I will serve him. I will trust him. I will hope in him. Not though I die, I will trust him. But if I trust him, I won't die. But the question really is, do I trust God not only with my life, but with my death? Because if I do, then I know that I can trust God with everything with health, with your children, with age, with crisis, with it all. Can God be trusted with your life and with your death? There are anchors that enable us to say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And we see those anchors at play in our text today. This is another episode in the continuing saga of Paul that we've been following for 14 chapters in the 20-odd years of his life, and it might feel like 20 years of your life. We've been in Acts for a long time. And in this passage, Acts 27, there is a happy ending for Paul, but only sort of. He's just come out of a two-year imprisonment. He's a prisoner still, and he's about to be elected to a second two-year term as a prisoner. And eventually, he will be put to death under the Roman emperor Nero. And this, too, is not a comfortable episode in Paul's life. Let's consider this for a while. Here's a background. Paul has gone on three missionary journeys around the northern coast of the Mediterranean, traveling from Judea through the various Roman provinces and as far as Macedonia and Greece. In chapter 21 of Acts, he goes back to Jerusalem, fully aware that persecution and maybe death await him there. And sure enough, he's arrested and he's imprisoned. But Jesus appears to him and says, Take courage, for as you have testified before me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. From Jerusalem, Paul is sent to the administrative capital, Caesarea, and languishes there for two years in prison until... Frustrated with the governor's refusal to hear his case and give him justice, he appeals his case to Caesar, exercising his right as a Roman citizen. And the governor has no choice now but to send him to Rome. And so we come to Acts chapter 27. Verse 1 of Acts 27 says, 
And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So, just to know, we are setting sail. Um, Luke is writing Acts, and this is just a reference to the fact that he is accompanying Paul. It's not unusual for a Roman citizen to be able to take people with him on board. He's also accompanied, according to verse 2, with Aristarchus, a Christian from Thessalonica. And then verses 2 and verse, to verse 12, the ship puts to sea, goes up to Sidon, where Paul gets permission to visit with his friends. From there, they embark on their Mediterranean cruise. They sail under the lee, that means out of the wind, on the north side of the island of Cyprus. They sail along the northern coast of the Mediterranean until they get to the port city of Myra. And there the centurion Julius finds an Alexandrian ship on its way to Italy. Almost certainly a ship with a cargo of wheat. Alexandria was the chief supplier of Rome's wheat. So the prisoners and the guards transfer from ship to ship, and the voyage continues. Sailing against the trade winds at that time of year, they make their way with difficulty, the text says, to Cnidus in Asia Minor. And again, the wind, inter wind interferes and forces them to sail now south to the island of Crete and to a harbor called Fair Haven. So that's the journey so far. Now, there at the season of the year, right at the threshold, where it becomes very dangerous to sail in this part of the Mediterranean. There's a harbor in Fair Havens where they could spend the winter, but it's not ideal. And there's another city on the other side of the island, Phoenix, with a bigger and more protected port. And the question is, can they make it there in time? Now, Paul is already a seasoned traveler on the Mediterranean. We know of at least two journeys across the sea that he has made. And in the conversation about whether they should continue or stay, Paul puts in his two cents and says, I perceive, as in, I'm pretty sure, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. If it seems odd that Paul is giving advice to a Roman centurion, again, as a Roman citizen, he would have been accorded a certain amount of respect. But the pilot of the ship and the owner of the ship were pretty sure that they could make it and that they would be okay. And the centurion, not surprisingly, takes their advice over Paul's, and we would do the same thing, and he gives the okay to sail. And that's where we come to the reading that Freddie read for us today. So just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. A gentle wind comes, ideal conditions for them to set sail, and so they do, hugging the shore. But what the sailors dread at that time of year happens. The weather started getting rough. The northeaster, a vicious wind that sweeps down from the land, makes it impossible for them to put into shore. And they're just pushed out to sea. They can't sail against it, and so they're forced to just be pushed with the wind lest they be capsized. They've got barely enough shelter off the small island of Cauda, barely enough shelter of the storm to secure again, with difficulty, the ship's boat, which would have been towed behind the ship, and they've got to haul her on board. And that boat will come into play a little bit later. 
Maybe you've seen in movies or on TV the image of a ship in a storm-tossed sea. You can see the rain lashing across the deck. You can see the wind and the rain making vision almost impossible. Everyone's shouting at each other because that's the only way that they can be heard. Everyone's desperate just trying to keep the boat from going over. These men are fighting for their lives. So they lower ropes over the bow of the ship and let them drift underneath and then they tie them together just hoping to keep the ship together not from falling apart. Then they also lower the gear, which the NIV says drop the anchor, but could also mean take down the sail. But that doesn't help steady the ship that much either. So on the next day, still at the mercy of the storm, they start lightening the ship by starting to throw cargo overboard. The next day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. They're in frantic survival mode. And yet the storm just continues unabated as fierce after three days as it was at the start. And for many days, the storm shows no sign of lessening. Neither sun nor stars are visible, so they don't even have a way of knowing where they are. They're not even eating, and they abandon all hope. We're gonna die. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, facing death by violence. Sure, it's coming any minute, but just in constant suspense, day after day. Some of you have, I know. I was driving a week and a half ago with Fred Weiss, whom some of you know. He's the Canadian director for Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Association. And before serving in that capacity, he was a, an executive with TELUS. And as we drove, he was telling me something that happened to him while he was flying on the TELUS jet, small 10 to 20 passengers, but the plane hit some turbulence, and all of a sudden it was so violent that the plane was tipped over, flipped right upside down. And Fred says, there were people on the ceiling, and for just a few seconds being hurled against one another, bruised, some bleeding, wallets, purses, books, flung all over the place. But the pilots had the presence of mind to hit autopilot, and the plane immediately righted itself. Now, you didn't think that could happen, did you? I didn't either, but it's true. And Fred said, not unnaturally, I thought I was going to die. And you would have all thought the same thing. Paul's ship had no button to press to make sure that everything was okay. They too thought that they were going to die and they had no reason to think otherwise. It's the kind of crisis that reveals who a person really is, isn't it? And one day, when Paul addresses them downstairs in the hold or the galley or wherever there was room to gather some of them together in relative safety, Paul stands up and says, I told you so. Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Very same words, injury and loss, that he had used earlier. And maybe it was an I told you so moment. Paul's been known to fire a barb once in a while. But he's also just reminding them of his credibility. You can trust what I say. And you can trust what I'm about to say now. I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. See, at this point, the loss of the ship doesn't even matter anymore. It's amazing what does and doesn't matter when your life is at stake. 
Now, why is Paul confident? He goes on. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whose I am or to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Take courage, Paul. Jesus had let Paul know that two years ago. Take courage. You will testify to me in Rome. And now in the midst of chaos and certain death, Paul needs to hear that again. Take courage. You will make it to Rome. But more yet, not just you, Paul, I will give you also all who travel with you. For your sake, Paul, I will also spare them. And whether they took courage or not, we don't know. The text doesn't say anything about that at this point. But Paul has confidence in the word of God spoken to him. But the others certainly had no reason for courage under the circumstances. Verse 27. On the 14th day, they're still being driven across the sea, directly towards Italy, as it turns out. God is still working out his purposes for Paul. But the storm has not let up. Their situation just begins to change. Around midnight, they suddenly sense that they are nearing land. And now the danger, if anything, increases. The danger of the ship being forced against a rocky shoal and being smashed. And so the crew drops four anchors and pray for day. And meanwhile, the sailors, who are now hoping just to escape with their lives, want to drop the lifeboat and be pushed to safety across on the surface, across the rocky shoals, and to shore. Everyone else can take their chances. And the excuse that they're giving to be able to do that is that they plan to drop some anchors from the bow bow just to steady the ship. But Paul quickly tells Julius the centurion, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Which makes sense, right? With no experienced sailors, the rest of them haven't got a chance. So Julius listens to Paul and gives the orders, cuts away the ropes, and the boat falls into the sea. Then near dawn, as they're waiting for day, Paul, who has taken courage, now he again encourages the others. Look, he says, it's been two weeks. Your nerves are shot. It's made worse by the fact that you haven't eaten. Now eat something. You need the strength. And don't worry, you will be just fine, he says. And then in front of them all, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, and he begins to eat. And they too take courage and also eat. It's remarkable how a calm and courageous person can bring calm to others in a crisis situation. Then in the deep breath before the final plunge, they get rid of whatever cargo is left, making the ship as light as possible in hopes that they too will clear the rocks And at daybreak, the moment comes. They stake everything on this rush for the beach. They cast off the anchors. They untie the rubber, the rudder. So now it's the point of no return. And they drive for the beach and don't make it. They ram into a reef so hard that the bow sticks fast. There's no way that they can break free. And behind them, the surf is just pounding against the back of the ship so hard that it's breaking the ship apart. 
You know how the grand swell of ocean waves becomes the white-capped breakers as they crash toward the beach? That's what's happening to the back of their boat times 10. Now the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners because if any of them escape, the soldiers' lives will be forfeit. But Julius now, the centurion, wanting to save Paul, prevents the soldiers from doing this. Instead, he tells everyone to jump ship and make for land as best as they can. Men, some of you won't make it. Good luck. 276 men in the foam and roar and power of the waves, waves powerful enough to break up a ship, and miraculously, astonishingly, everyone, everyone makes it to shore. I envision bodies more dead than alive just being hurled onto the beach, prisoner, soldier, sailor, commander, apostle. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Whipped by the winds, numbed by the cold, wet to the skin, but surprised and just thankful to at least to be alive. So the angel's words to Paul, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul's words to the men just hours before, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Turns out they're on the island of Malta, very close to the boot of Italy. And the islanders then take them in, gather them around a sheltered and roaring fire. And Paul, immediately serving the people and helping, that's what Christians do, right? Paul gathers up a bundle of sticks to throw on the fire. And as he does, there is a viper in the bundle that's driven out by the heat and fastens itself on Paul's hand. The islanders, somewhat superstitiously, assume that Paul's crime, they already know he's a prisoner, must have been murder. And though he's escaped the storm and the shipwreck, you cannot escape justice. Justice has been carried out and Paul will die. And so they watch him, waiting for him to swell up or to fall over and die. But he doesn't. And as they watch him, he's just going about his business. So then, superstitious, they assume he must be a god. And as the castaways' visit on this island is prolonged, Paul and his companions, note Luke says we again, and maybe some others, are received as guests by the Lord, the governor of the island. His name is Publius. And Publius's father, as it turns out, is ill. Paul prays for him and heals him. And news of that spreads through the population of the whole island, and those who are sick then also come and are prayed for and are healed. And after waiting out the winter three months, the whole ship's company again on board another ship, and they journey to Rome. Now that is, I think, about as good as an adventure story as you are going to see anywhere in Scripture. Man against the elements, a life and death struggle, no way out, and an unexpected hero. Early in the 20th century, uh, J.M. Barrie, who we also know as the creator of Peter Pan, wrote a play called The Admirable Crichton. Some of you know it. Crichton is a butler. He is a servant in the house of a rich English family. And on an expedition by boat, the ship is wrecked and they end up on a deserted island. And as they all struggle to survive, it's the servants, and Crichton in particular, 
who show themselves the most competent. And before very long, it's the servants who are organizing and directing the affairs on the island. And Crichton, by consensus, becomes the leader. Well, something like that is happening with Paul. He comes on board a prisoner, and by the end of a few weeks, he is the one being looked to. Paul is the one who brings the word of God to the ship. Paul is the one who gives them hope and encourages them to eat. And even his words to the centurion override those of the sailors. And Julius responds by cutting loose the ship's boat. In these two weeks, Paul's life is endangered no less than three times. The storm and shipwreck itself, the soldiers who want to kill the prisoners, and the poisonous snake that bites him. And yet, in all of it, Paul is calm, he's confident, he is at peace. When the storm is howling all around you, and maybe within you, Are you confident? Would you like to have peace? Though he slay me, still I will hope, I will trust in him. Paul had said earlier on his way to Jerusalem, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, in a few years, he will be executed by the emperor Nero. But here in between, his life is protected. But it didn't matter. It was all the same to Paul. After he finally arrives in Rome and is sitting again in prison, not knowing whether he will live or die, he writes a letter to the Philippians, which I quoted earlier in the service. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with all courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether in life or in death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To live would be useful, I know, But in truth, I'd rather go to my death so I can be with Christ. Here is a man utterly at peace. Later in Philippians, he also said, I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation. We often say as Christians, Lord, I give you my life. I'm yours. Use me for your glory. But how many of us can truly say, Lord, I trust you with my life and I trust you with my death. I want to live for your glory, but if you ask it, if my death would also glorify you, then I trust you with that too. Jesus himself, contemplating his own death, said, Father, your will be done. And on the cross, with his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want to draw our attention back again to Paul's words to his shipmates. Verses 23 and 24, when he says, This very night there stood before me an angel of the God whose I am and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And again, the NIV, which we read earlier, captures it beautifully, I think. The God whose I am 
in whom I serve. There's three things here that give Paul, and you, I hope, a basis for peace and confidence in any circumstance. So as we briefly consider these three things, have in your mind the things that give you unrest these days. Things maybe you even fear. Fear for your child or distressed over somebody else whom you hurt for. For your marriage or for your health. I know of at least two women, not here, but two women who have recently been diagnosed with cancer and have been told that they have less than a year to live. Maybe you have in mind a chronic concern or an uncertain future, uncertain for any one of a hundred reasons. What do you carry in your heart with you this morning? And what do you plead with God for? I want your peace. Whereas a man once said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. My belief is weak. Three things for Paul. The first is the reality that he belonged to God. The God whose I am, the God to whom I belong, he said. And the idea here is not so much Paul saying to God, I'm yours, but Paul recognizing that God has said to him, you are mine. Paul was God's. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a uh, a discipleship manual by which the Reformed churches after the uh, the Reformation instructed and still instruct Christians in the truths of the faith. Dated around 1563 AD, it's made up of a series of 129 questions and answers. And the very first question is, what is my only comfort? In life and in death. And the answer, my only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul belonged, body and soul, life and in death, to his Savior, Jesus. And God's posture towards Paul is, you are mine. Not just as a follower, not just as a servant, not just as a disciple, not as a teacher says, this is my student, but as a father says of a child, she is mine. As somebody would speak of a treasured object as my treasured possession, Paul's belonging to God and God's Paul is mine was absolute. It was possession, it was relationship. Paul was emphatic in saying of Jesus, I am his slave, and he was proud to call himself that. And God was proud and delighted to be able to say to Paul, I am your God, and you are my treasured son. And if you this morning are a Christian on this day, That is, if you've come to see your sin and you've come to Christ as your Savior, if you are a Christian, then you belong to God. You are his. He knows your circumstances and he's got your back. He's already factored it into the good that he intends for your life. He looks at you and says, you are mine. I love you and I am strong. I will not let this crush or destroy you. The circumstance that looms so large in your life right now, this dark tunnel that you can't see the end of, I got it. I remember helping James 
try to learn to swim in Camp Caroline a couple years back. And he clung, clung to me. He was afraid to let go. But I would gently pry his arms away and just with one hand under his belly, hold him up and say, no, just kick your feet a little. You're okay. I've got you. But he was so scared. He only saw the water. But I saw him. I saw the whole pool. I knew that I was holding on to him and that I was standing on the bottom. He was fine. I've got you, James. I've got you. God's got you. Now, that doesn't mean you're always safe. And I want to come back to that in a minute, how you define safe. So the God to whom you belong, first of all. The second thing that Paul says here is that the God to whom he belongs is the God, he says, whom I serve. We've already noted that Paul had come to the realization long since that his service to Christ was of more value to him than even his own life. He was more than willing to die in his service to his Lord and his God. James Marquette a Jesuit missionary in the mid-1600s, traveled by canoe with Louis Joliet from French Canada and a handful of Indian guides, traveled into territory that was essentially unknown to the Europeans, and they made it to within about 700 kilometers of the Gulf of Mexico, which was an amazing feat for them. And as they traveled, at one point he was warned that they should turn back. They were about to enter a region where they would almost certainly encounter hostile natives and that they very well might be killed. And in a sentiment that we can hardly understand for ourselves and maybe in our day, Marquette responded that he hoped, he hoped he might have the honor of being martyred for his Savior. As a servant of Christ, even the very preservation of his own life was of secondary importance to him. And he did, in fact, survive, but on a second voyage, died of illness. He was 38. And so the almost cliche that you sometimes hear was true of Marquette. He died doing what he loved, expending himself in the service of Christ. Paul would have understood that. And the reality of being alive mattered less to him than being a servant of Jesus. And it gave him incredible peace and confidence when death came near. Paul didn't have a death wish by any means. But when your life is of secondary importance, then death itself loses its ability to evoke fear. John Donne in the early 1600s wrote a poem, Death Be Not Proud. And it goes like this. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, and then from thee much more must flow. After death, more rest and sleep. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. 
Thou art slave to fate and chance, kings and desperate men, and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then with pride? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. For one who recognizes that they belong to God and are in his service, who live to serve him, death in his service is but a pause. The third thing that gave Paul peace, even as the storm constantly raged around him and threatened to destroy the ship and all those who were on it, was the certain knowledge that God had said to him, you must stand before Caesar, that God would preserve and protect his life until God's call on his life had been fulfilled. Jesus had told him two years before. He reminds him of it now. Paul, you will make it to Rome. You will not die here. This is my word to you. About a year ago, my sons were very much into uh, the video game and the character Mario. In Mario's quest to rescue the princess, he had to meet and defeat many enemies, and he had tools at his disposal to enable him to do so, if he used them well. And one of those was the star. Does anyone know what the star did for Mario? What did the star do? Made him invincible. For the few seconds that he had the star, he could just run, and enemy, any enemy that he encountered was destroyed automatically. For as long as Paul was living out what God had called him to do, Paul was invincible. God had called him to testify to the gospel in Rome, and until he got to Rome, he would not, he could not die. No storm could overwhelm him. No zealous soldier could execute him. No venomous snake could harm him. God had called him to Rome, and to Rome God would bring him. And Paul was absolutely secure until then. He was invincible, and he knew it. And, as we read, God had given them the lives of everyone else on board. And so Paul could encourage them, you too will not perish. Now, as I, as I read and studied and tried to get a grasp on this passage, it seemed to me that this passage says loudly and clearly, God preserves the life of everyone until God's purposes in you are completed. No one, no one will perish a moment before that. What does that mean? It means that nobody dies too soon. What it does not mean is that nobody dies too early. One can die, and some do, young, middle age. Not everyone, we know, dies quietly at a ripe old age. So now we come back to the question, how do you define safe? Paul made it to Rome and about four years later was in fact put to death, apparently beheaded by the state. And as I understood this text, God preserves the life of his servants until his purposes in them are fulfilled. I found a great deal of comfort in that. There is a call on my life that I know is not yet fulfilled. It doesn't mean I'll live to 90 
but I think it means that I will live past 44. But it seemed to me not particularly pastoral to stand before you and say, God will preserve your life until his purposes in you are fulfilled. You might still die tomorrow, though. Peace be with you. You're dismissed. I'm not sure how much of a comfort that is to you. And I was talking about it with Kara the other evening. And she's obviously a better preacher than I am. She's shorter, for starters, and has more insight. And she said, the problem with us is that we still don't think that dying is a good thing. We still don't think that dying is a good thing. Death, be not proud. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. I don't want to die. There's so much that I want to do. And yet to see Christ is better, infinitely better, than anything in your bucket list. Paul said, I belong to God. I joyfully live to serve him. He will preserve me until he considers his purposes in me to be fulfilled. And at that time, and my life closes, old or young, naturally or in a flood or at the storm or by illness or by execution, I trust him to still bring me to himself. 